grace. Father in heaven, we are amazed at your grace. If we work it through on our heads a little bit, we realize that um, our sin had such a grip on us that there was a trajectory in our lives which was anything but pleasing to you. But Father, you in your mercy and you in your grace called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. As we put our faith and trust in you, the Spirit of God worked this amazing freedom in us. There is no condemnation in us any longer before you. We are at peace with you. Father, I pray that we would continue to walk in your strength, walk in your way. We're not perfect this side of heaven, but our hope and the promise of your word is that one day when Christ returns, that work of transformation and perfection will be completed in a blink of an eye. What a day that will be. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Before you sit down, just say hi to one or two people. It's almost the most boisterous time of our uh, service in the morning. You may be seated. Some of you may have heard uh, squeeches of uh, brakes and uh, seen a fire truck drive by. There's been a fire that's been brewing in the back trees over there. And uh, we're not in danger at all, but uh, it just gives the fire department access to come through our land and uh, see if they can uh, deal with whatever's going on there before it gets some uh, out of control. You'll be sure to know if there's a reason or concern because I'll be the first one out that door. <laughs> I moved my car out onto the street so that I've got easy access. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'll be second out the door. <laughs> uh, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's often Bibles in the seats in front of you. And uh, we're continuing our look at this particular chunk of Scripture, Genesis 1 to 11, to understand God's way in this world and the history of humankind the creation of this world and God's intention in creating it and why it is the way that it is. It's um, so helpful to get God's perspective on our world rather than the world's perspective on our world. So we're just picking up on the story of Cain and Abel, uh, the middle of chapter 4, starting at verse 17, and now just the trajectory of Cain's life. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived in Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other, Zila. Ada bore Jabal, 
He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play, play the lyre in the pipe. Zelah also born, bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zelah, Hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Father, your word is living. Your word is a word that brings orientation in our life like no other. It is a living word. I pray that you will make it live in our hearts, that it would resonate, that its truth would just settle into our hearts as making sense of this world in which we live. Thank you for explaining things to us. Thank you for giving us some of the big picture. Uh, help us to wrap our heads around it now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been dealing with the book of Genesis so far, we are, uh, we've dropped in on chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and now we're in chapter 4. I still think that one of the key verses in this whole section, at least to this point, is Genesis 3.15, where it talks there about the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Because from that flow really the history of humanity. From that is described two communities, two humanities. There are no other communities in this world. There are only two humanities. All of the world, all of humanity is divided into one of those two groups. And it's helpful for us to, I think, wrap our heads around that. When we come to the story then of Cain and Abel, what we see with the story of Cain and Abel is the beginning of the hostilities between those two groups being worked out. And in fact, then from those two groups, we will have the line of Cain, which are the line of the people who reject God, who live outside of uh, the presence of God, away from the commands of God. And we will see at the very end of our text this morning and into next week, the line of Seth. And the line of Seth will be the line of godly humanity. And those are the trajectories for all of humanity in this age. And Genesis chapter 3, 15 sets that out for us. And so as we've been in chapter 4, what we've been looking at is the development of this line of Cain, how it came to be. And we read last week from John where it says, Cain was of the evil one and his deeds were evil. So we know that he was in the line or he was one of the offspring of the serpent. And then what we have described in chapter 4 then is then the, the, the trajectory of that particular humanity, that particular community, the community of those who reject God. And so as we think about these four verses in chapter 4 that we've just read, there's four sort of headings or points that I think are helpful for us to work through and to think through the implications of what it means to walk out of the presence of God. Uh, to walk away from the presence of God, how multiple millions of people in our world live now that are in the line of Cain, so to speak. 
One of the things that struck me right off the bat as I read this, when you read verses 17 to verse 24, God is silent. You don't hear God's voice. You don't hear God speaking to anyone. He's silent for four or for six or 700 years. Uh, it's hard to know the, the length of time between Cain and Lamech, but if you follow it in uh, the genealogy with the time between Seth and Enoch, you get about six or 700 years. Whatever it might be, there is a substantial period of time now where God is absolutely silent to this community. You don't hear him speaking to them in any particular way. Remember, we said of Cain that Cain went out of the presence of God. It doesn't mean that God didn't know anything about him. It doesn't mean that God knew about Cain. But by Cain doing that, what it's saying is Cain walked away from God. He walked away from God having any influence in his life. He walked away from God speaking to him. He walked away from hearing the voice of God. He walked away from the commands of God having any meaningful um, influence or impact on his life. And he lived his life in defiance of God. He lived his life in rejections of God. He lived his life disregarding God. That is the trajectory of those in the line of Cain. There is a whole community of people, one whole community of people who want nothing to do with God. They don't want him involved in their lives. It's one thing for you and I as a child of God, and I assume many of us here are children of God, and many of us have heard what we would call or experienced what we call the silence of God. When it feels like our prayers just hit this wall and, and God is quiet towards us and we can't hear him speaking to us, and what we do is we persist and we keep coming to, to meet with God's people and we keep singing and we keep reading, and eventually one day that silence is broken. And we once again enter into communion with God. But what this is talking about in the line of Cain is that God doesn't speak to them anymore. It's, it's an orientation of their heart. The Bible says the fool, and not in the sense of an idiot, but a, a fool in the sense of one that makes a bad decision, says there is no God and lives his life as though there is no God. So it's a one thing altogether to live your life as though God doesn't exist, to give him no thought, to not listen to the voice of God speaking towards you, to have no inclination to him, to hear nothing from him, to be away from his presence. Think about that reality. That is the reality of, as I've already said, millions and millions of people in this world. They are out of the presence of God and God is silent. Towards them, And so we begin to see the, the way of people to God, the way of that community that is in the line of the serpent, those who reject God, is that God has no relevance to their life. The second thing that we see, though, is that God has huge relevance to their life, whether they acknowledge it or not. And we see this when we work through this. So ask yourself this question. Maybe you've asked it before. Does God only bless those who obey him? Does God only provide rain and sunshine to those who are in the community of God or in the family of God? Is it only Christians that have houses and cars and bank accounts? Is it only Christians that experience the promised blessings that God describes in uh, Genesis chapter 2? The blessings of marriage, the blessings of children, the blessings of a fruitful work life, the provision of the bounty of the world, a meaningful place in this world. Is it only those who acknowledge God that experience those things? Well, absolutely not. 
We know that to be true with, with our experience of, of those that we know that don't walk with God. They are successful. They have material prosperity. They have families. They have children. Many of them have health. Many of them grow old and die in their sleep. God still blesses the unrepentant. He still blesses those who choose to ignore him. Think about God's blessing upon Cain. God didn't immediately kill Cain after he murdered his brother. God protected him even. He preserved his life. He put a mark on him so that his life would be sustained for many, many years to come. Cain was able to get married. And the question, well, where did Cain get his wife from? Well, the answer is he married a sister. It's not a, it's not a shattering thought. It's not a wrong thought. It's, there's a lot of explanation behind that. We know that Adam was the father of all humankind, that Eve is the mother of all living beings. And so he had to have married one of his sisters or a niece, but one in his family. Now, there's a reason why we don't marry brothers and sisters any longer. But in those first days, it was not the same issue and the same things didn't pertain to those relationships. Cain enjoyed an intimate relationship with his wife. He had sexual relations with his wife. And then out of those sexual relations, one of the joys was a child was born to them. And then generation after generation after generation, we have six generations of Cain mentioned here. The blessing of God was on them in the fact that they, they grew and they multiplied and their family grew and multiplied. Cain was the builder of the very first city ever mentioned in the Bible. A couple things about this that caught my attention. One, this was direct rebellion against God. Remember, God had said one of the things about Cain was that you are to be a wanderer and a nomad for the rest of your life. And this is almost Cain's way of sticking his fist up at God, says, not a chance. I'm going to build a city. The second thing that is interesting to me as sort of a side note is, and I, Al Mohler was helpful here as I was listening to him. In the Bible, cities are almost always put in a negative light. Almost always. It is, it's, it's very difficult to find any city except Jerusalem, the city of David, spoken of in good terms or in healthy terms. And Moeller goes on to describe in general, and I think he's very true here, why it is that cities are never presented in a good light. First of all, cities are often a representative of human pride. Look at the cities of our world. What are they known for? They're known for their architecture. They're known for their gardens. They're known for their technological accomplishments. They're known for their gardens. They're, they're known for things that men and women have accomplished and they put on display in these cities. Think of Nebuchadnezzar when he was out on, the, on his palace wall one day looking out of all that he made. It, it, pride filled his heart and he said, look at all of this stuff I have made. Cities are a way in which men and women display their human skills and giftedness. And so human cities are almost always representative of human pride. A second thing that we read about cities or that Moeller notes about cities, that cities are almost always these centers or concentrations of human sinfulness. You think about that. All of a sudden you have masses of people gathered together in a, 
a fairly confined geographic location, and you can find just about every sin imaginable to mankind. And in many of the larger cities, those sins are on offer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. One of the things I think that parents are concerned about when their children leave home and go to university in a big city or away from them in a city that is of any large is, is that they don't get into the wrong crowd, that, that their sinful uh, proclivities aren't fascinated by all the opportunities that are out there. We even have cities that are known for particular sexual um, um, preferences. So you can go to uh, cities that are known for gambling. You can go to cities that are known for their sexual um, opportunities. You can go to cities where child exploitation is part of that city. Cities are places where people gather and conglomerate together and there can be a focus on sin. I think the third thing that Moeller mentions about sin or cities is that cities are often the places where idolatry flourishes. Um, where idolatry is um, front and center. And you can read that in the letters, even in the Bible, that are sent to people that are living in cities. Uh, cities are places of idolatry. So cities are not a positive thing necessarily in the Bible. In fact, often they are a place of considerable danger. But nonetheless, God blessed Cain as he had the city. And notice, he didn't name his city after God. He named it after his son, which is fascinating to me. And then we get to his sixth generation, fifth generation of Lamech, and Lamech has three boys, and these boys are brilliant. We have one of the boys who is the father of farming, of, of the nomadic lifestyle, and of, of cattle, and maybe sheep, and whatnot. And the father means he's just the beginning of that. He wasn't the epitome, but he began to gather all the information possible about farming and about horticulture. And he began to put it into, into a sort of a known category. And then it, it flourished from him and from him, it flourished into the world. A second son became one of these cultural um, just whizzes and his expertise was in music and he started creating instruments and then they started writing music and music has such a huge influence on our world and on our life and he is the father of that sort of particular um, bent or that sort of particular cultural flourishing. And then we have Tubal Cain, the father of technology, brass and iron. It's fascinating to work that through and think, well, they were digging up rocks one day and they happened to put them in a fire one day and the fire happened to be hot enough one day and it began to be molten and it happened to fall into to sand. I mean, not happen by chance, but they were working with it, experimenting with them. All of a sudden, they realized that this stuff was useful and you could make all kinds of stuff from it. And he was the father of this. And so here we have these three young men, brilliant young men in the line of Cain who lived outside of the presence of God. Where does such ability come from? I'm fascinated by Elon Musk and his ability to create stuff. Like, the guy's just, he's just, he's just a brain on steroids. Where does that ability come from? God. Absolutely, it comes from God. God sustains him in life. God sustains him in health. God has given him an inquisitive mind. God has given him a mind that works in such a way that he can come up with rockets and cars and, and, and artificial intelligence and stuff that goes in to help your brain work. 
It's an expression that he is made in the image of God like everybody else. And just because you um, are not a Christian doesn't mean the image of God disappears from you. We all bear the image of God, whether we're in the line of Cain or whether we're in the line of Seth, whether in the community that acknowledges God or in the community that ignores God. Scientific discovery and technological advance is not reserved for Christians alone. God has brought about into our world some incredible progress through people are, who are proclaimed atheists and agnostics and are defiant towards God. Even in Cain's family who had no interest in God, such incredible things came. A lot of this is categorized or understood in terms of what theologians will call common grace. We have saving grace, which is uh, those that experience salvation. And it's a very particular grace that is given to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. But we have common grace that's described everywhere in the Bible, which talks about the fact that God is good to all he has made. It's not like if you have a garden and you're a follower of God and your neighbor is a, an avowed atheist and his, he has a garden that when it rains, it only rains on your garden. Or if, when the sun shines, it's not like it's dark, gloomy clouds over their garden and nothing grows. And in your garden, it just flourishes because the sun shines all the time. It's not that the law of gravity only impacts you and their world is chaos because there's no such law. It's the common grace of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God to all that he has made as he blesses and as he provides for and as he sustains all that he has made. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons or children of your father who is in heaven. So in other words, by loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, by praying for those who are opposed to the ways of God, we are like our Father in heaven. And then it, Jesus goes on to say, and he says, for he makes his son to shine on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. It should be a help to you and I to know how do we interact with people who reject the God that we love so much. Should we help them move if they don't know the Lord? Absolutely. Should we share our bounty with them if they don't know the Lord? Absolutely. Should we pray for them and love them if they don't know the Lord? Absolutely. We should be like our Heavenly Father in heaven. But there is a massive danger here, loved ones. The massive danger is that in Cain's world and in his line, the blessings of God are looked at not through the lens of God, but through the lens of self. What happens when we experience and think about blessings that come to us from God, but we think they are at our own hands? There is a massive danger in confusing material blessing with spiritual blessing and saying, because I am prospering physically, because I am prospering materially, I must have it all together. Confusing material blessing with the reason behind your success leads to pride, misplaced confidence in gifting, and incredible spiritual danger. There's a parable that Jesus told 
a long while ago. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Notice it says the land of the rich man. So it's, just, it's the land. It's God's goodness to the land. It's God sending rain upon the land. So it's the land of the rich man that produced a bounty. And this is his response. He says, and he thought to himself, the danger of self-talk. We've talked about this a number of times. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will bring bigger ones. And I will, there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? See, that's the danger of material prosperity without a perspective of God or outside of the presence of God. It's all me. It's all my brains. It's all my work. It's all my cultivation. It's my barns. It's my crop. It's, it's, it's my soul. It's all mine. No provision or no acknowledgement that God has sent rain. No acknowledgement that God has given me health. No acknowledgement that God has gifted me. No awareness or, or willingness even to consider that I am where I am because of God's goodness to me and his kindness to me. There's a verse in Revelation which many of us are familiar with. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pure, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Material wealth does not necessarily equate with spiritual wealth. There's a verse in Romans which says, do you presume on the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and patience of God? Do you take it for granted? Do you, do you pat yourself on the back and say, it's all me. I've done it. I've worked hard. I, I, I've, nobody else has worked as hard as I. This is all my doing. And he goes on, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. As you look at the bounty in your life, as you look at the provision of God, as you look at your bank account, as you look at your car, as you look at your family, as you look at all that you have, you, you're, what, what you're supposed to do and what is true and what is right is to think, wow, God, have you done all of this? to look to outside yourself and why me? And to realize that it's God's goodness and God's kindness and God's grace that has provided all of this. Therefore, you should repent of your pride and self-focus. Grace for those who choose outside to live outside the presence of God. God continues to give grace to live and not just to live, but to thrive and to learn even to those who reject him. Thirdly, God is obliging to the rebellious. If you run long enough and if you fight hard enough and if you resist strenuously enough, God will, God will, as it say, take his hands off of you. It's a terrifying thing to ever come to the point in your life where God gives you what you want. Where God says to you, if, if you want it, if you want to live as though I don't exist, then I will take my hands off of you. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is what, this is what people do who live outside of the... They suppress the truth. 
They suppress the truth about God who reveals himself in nature to us. They suppress the truth about God who has revealed himself to their word. And many of us have heard the word of God and live outside his presence. They suppress the truth that they know inside of their own heart because God has placed his law inside of us. They suppress the truth that they know about Christ. They suppress the truth that God is real and that changes everything. And it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made so they are not without, so they are without, not without excuse. In other words, loved one, there is not a human being in this world that it's not possible in some ways to see the revelation of God to us in what he has created, whether it be people or the beauty of the world. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to their lusts and to their impurity, to dishonoring their bodies because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. This is, this is what so many people do. They exchange the truth about God that they know and accept a lie instead that I'm the captain of my soul, that I'm the one that, um, that gets me where I am, that this world is all that there is, that I don't need God, that God has no influence in my life. And the consequence, if one walks down that road long enough, is God says, okay. It's a terrifying, terrifying thought. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 4. This is why, why I say God obliges them. In Genesis chapter 4, we see this rapid escalation of sin. Abel, or Cain, murdered his brother Abel. When we get to Lamech, Lamech is not only in a polygamous relationship with two wives, but he's bragging about killing a young boy for wounding him. There's no regret, there's no remorse, there's no fear. There's just a challenge. If, if Abel or if Cain was bad, look at how bad I am. You ain't seen bad until you've seen me. And then you follow this trajectory through a few more generations and you come to Genesis chapter six, which we'll get to in a few weeks. And it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what happens when we live without God. This is what happens when we reject the presence of God and the voice of God. And what happens is while the line of Cain moves forward, yeah, they build a city. Yes, they have incredible technological advances. Yes, they grow in farming. Yes, they have culture that is just beautiful. While they show technical ability, it is nothing but moral failure. And for all of our technology and for all of our culture in the world in which we live today, what dominates our language? Nuclear war. Mass shootings, cultural 
decline, insurrections. And with all of our human progress in technology, we can't solve the problem of the human heart. With all of our education, with all of this, this stuff that God allows us to accomplish, without God, it does nothing for our soul. Money doesn't fix our moral problems. Education doesn't change our human nature. Technology doesn't impact our human nature. The trouble is inside of us. The trouble is our rebellion against God. The trouble is our, um, our moral decline and chaos inside. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Out of our hearts flow all kinds of evil, which technology can't fix. It can fix my physical heart, but it can't fix my spiritual heart. So God is silent, but God is kind. But God obliges when they say, hands off me, God. The fourth thing that we see is God is near. God is near to all who call on him. What we are introduced now in verse 25 is to now the godly line of Seth. We've got the godly line of Cain, which will become one community, one humanity. And we have the godly line of Seth, which will be the godly line. And actually, out of the line of Seth, if you follow it through and you come to Luke chapter 3, who is born in the godly line of Seth? Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. You see, what is going on? And, and loved ones, we should be aware of the fact that we are in a spiritual reality. This world is not just a material world. We've been introduced by God in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. And we've been introduced to Satan in chapter 3. Now the serpent said to Eve, the serpent which we know now is Satan, the dragon. So there is a spiritual reality, and that spiritual reality finds its hostility in this, these two seeds that are now battling. And so when we fight one another, when there's battles and there's wars, Paul would say we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against spiritual paladies and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And so we see this battle working out between Cain and Abel. That was the first expression of this hostility between the seeds. And it looks like Cain won. It looks like the seed of the serpent won. And the seed of the woman was destroyed and the promise of Genesis 3 would become to nothing. This was, a, this was a critical time in the beginning of the world. The seed of the woman now rests in a new child being born to Adam and Eve. That child is Seth. And Eve so much as acknowledges by faith. God has given me another offspring. The same word, an offspring of the woman. God has given me another offspring because Cain killed his brother Abel. This is Eve expressing her faith in the promise of God. This is Eve's faith being, being verbalized as she trusts in the promise of God, as she hopes in the promise of God. And little does she know that from that child, Seth, will eventually come Jesus Christ, who is what? The Savior of the world, the offspring of the woman. As far as the promise of Genesis 3.15 is concerned, the Messiah could have come from anywhere in the human race, but 
God had determined that it would come through the line of Seth. And then to Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's a beautiful text. We're, we now jump back generations to just after Abel died. Adam and Eve have sexual relations again, and a child is born to them, Enosh. So there's a period of 105 years, if you follow the genealogies and you hold them to be accurate. There's a period of about 105 years where people were in hiding, it seems, where nobody was calling on the name of the Lord. There's, I could speculate, I, I have speculated myself. I wonder if it's part of this reality that, that in our world, Jesus says, if they have hated me, they will hate you. And this hatred and this animosity of Cain, if it hadn't grown in his family, maybe they were, they were fighting against Adam and Eve and other siblings and they were afraid to worship because of what happened when they worshiped with Cain and Abel and Abel was killed. I don't know, but for whatever reason, the worship of God was somehow suppressed until the birth of Enosh. And people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Loved ones, this is the only option to live in a world like ours. This is the only way to make it in our world. It's to call upon the name of the Lord. It's to recognize that God is real and that changes everything. It's to realize that God does provide us with everything that we have. It's to accept the goodness of God all the time in our lives. It's to, it's to move ourselves from thinking about ourselves and living for ourselves and calling upon God for help and sustenance and guidance and direction. And that's what these people began to do. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. There is salvation in no other name but in the name of Jesus Christ. This is, in a sense, them looking ahead to the birth of Christ by faith, looking ahead to the Savior that God would provide in the line of Seth, the, the name of the Lord. This is what they called out for. Do you call upon the name of the Lord? In the chaos of your day, in the struggles that you face, in the battles that you're experiencing, in the decisions that you have to make, or do you try and accomplish them in your own strength, by your own technological technological prowess, by your, by your own just pull up myself by the bootstraps and I'm going to accomplish this? Or do you follow the line of Seth and call upon the name of the Lord? It's a wonderful reminder to you and I when we're in distress, when we're surrounded by trouble, when we're hated and discouraged, maybe when we're in joy, what do we do? We turn to the Lord and we call upon the name of the Lord for he is near. It's the only way to live in the world that God has made is to worship the creator, not creation. This is worth thinking through. If you have the joy of living in the presence of God and an awareness of God and hearing the voice of God, thank the Lord for that privilege. If you're one even here this morning and you really have lived so much of your life as though God didn't exist, as though you could do it on your own, today is an opportunity for you to reflect and really say, is it me? Am I responsible for all that I've accomplished? Or is God real? And if God is real, that can change everything in my life. Father, we come before you today. I'm finding so much help and clarification from a big, big picture to just realize the world in which we live. 
it really is divided into two groups of people. Those that live in your presence, those that obey the commands of God, those that profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and those that don't. And Father, I'm thankful for your graciousness to all humankind. Because at one point, I lived in darkness. At one point, I was darkness. But it was your kindness that led me to repentance. And Father, I pray for any here this morning who have, to this point, defiantly raised their fist towards you or quietly in their own heart even said, you know, I'm a self-made individual. I've done it all in my own strength and power. Father, may you open their eyes even in this next instant to realize the precariousness of life, even as we read from James, we don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't even know what 10 minutes from now holds. But we can know the one who does. Father, would you direct our hearts towards you, the living God, who has made yourself known to humanity and all that you have made. And Father, may there even be a turning amongst hearts here this morning, I ask in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. <clears throat>